This episode of The Explainer is supported by daft.ie. Are you buying or selling a home? If it's for sale, it's on daft.ie, Ireland's number one property website. Hello and welcome to the journal's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Christine Bohan in Flora Byrne, and this week, Ireland's love-hate relationship with the universal social charge. In Budget 2024 this week, we saw the biggest change to the USC in years, with a 4.5% rate cut to 4%. Now, if we're going to talk about the universal social charge, it's practically a rule that we have to call it the much-hated USC. I did a Google search just before we recorded this episode, and I found literally a few hundred articles over the past decade referring to the USC in that way. It's not loved, to put it mildly. And it's easy to see why. The USC was brought in in the harshest budget Ireland has ever seen, and it's become a byword for a sweeping, unavoidable tax levied on as many people as possible. But even though it was forged in chaos, it stood the test of time. It brings in 5 billion euro every year. It's loved by economists for its cleanness and its fairness, and no political party wants to get rid of it at this stage. So why does Ireland have a love-hate relationship with the USC? With me today is my guest, Barra Rowntree, Associate Professor of Economics at Trinity College Dublin. Barra, thanks so much for being here for this. Thanks for having me on. Barra, can you give us a history lesson in the USC? Because I think a lot of people will remember that it came in during one of the very dramatic budgets during the financial crisis, when the government was quite desperately looking for ways to bring in money. So can you paint a picture for us? How was it brought in? Yeah, sure. So if you think back to the time of the, the financial crisis, we we had kind of a series of, we actually had two budgets in 2009. We had an initial budget, and then we had an emergency budget. And then the following year, we were still in quite a bad position. The public finances were, the economy was doing badly, unemployment was rising. There was the, the concerns about how to be able to fund the the country into the future. And so then in, in, in the budget of that year in 2010, there was the announcement that we'd have this new levy coming in uh, the, uh, the following year and it would be called the Universal Social Charge. Now, sometimes it kind of described that, oh, it was a new tax kind of brought in and of itself, but it actually amalgamated some existing levies. So there had actually been already an emergency levy brought in called the Income Levy. And then there was a, another levy called the Health Levy, which had existed for many years. And that was just, you know, again, another form of tax on income. And that, that's fundamentally what the USC is. It's just a tax on income. Um, it bundled together those other ones we, we we increased the rates of it back then and uh, and and it, it brought in quite a lot of revenues to uh, to try plug that gap in in, in the public finances and it, it's worth again remembering that that gap in the public finances kind of came about because well one we had the the banking crisis implode and that led to kind of knock-on implications in terms of construction employment fell down we saw then revenues decline elsewhere and we also in particular saw revenues decline from property sales and transactions and construction we were very reliant on revenues from them and and so again the USC was really brought in kind of in that context to 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 plug the gap and so what was the reaction to it like in 2010? Because I was having a look around at newspaper headlines from the time and it's very hard to divorce the reaction to the USC from the reaction to the budget generally because there were so many measures mm. being brought in. As you say, it was a time of intense financial crisis. Um, so what was it? How did people receive it? Yeah, so unsurprisingly, people didn't like it. it was, unsurprisingly. <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was a new tax. It was brought in in these times where you had both taxes going up, you had incomes falling because unemployment was falling and wages were actually being cut in, in nominal terms, like in cash terms for many people. Um, and and 
and, uh, and, and you know, so services weren't being improved and you did have taxes going up. So the USC, I think, really became the poster boy for that kind of a period of the austerity era, right? And kind of, it kind of, I think, caught a lot of the flack for other things that were happening at the time. There's not maybe as hostile a reaction to income tax or pay-related social insurance, PRSI, which are other, even larger taxes on income. But I think it's, it's really the context that the USC came in on that. It came in at a time when you had services getting worse and being cut. You had people's pay being cut. You had taxes going up. So I think it, it's very much associated with the time and it's as a result very unpopular. But um, uh, maybe some, as we'll discuss later on, maybe a little bit unfairly. And it has social charge in its name. So does this actually mean that part of it is ring fenced to pay for social programmes or should we not read too much into the name and it was just a product of the time when they needed yeah, to Yeah, no, so, so, so not really. And actually, like, it, it mirrors the, the health levy, which it amalgamated in that sense. The health levy was brought in and it was, we said, oh, well, that's going to fund health spending. But that's just kind of a bit of a nonsense, really. It's something that politicians like to do. They like to describe certain taxes as being kind of ring-fenced or hypothecated sometimes in the jargon for for um, uh, for particular purposes. And so you have that, you know, with the with pay-related social insurance as well. We, we kind of have this pretend world in which... PRSI goes into a fund and that fund pays for people's pensions. Um, but really, if you look at what actually happens year to year, it goes into this big fund. And in years where that fund doesn't have enough to pay pensions, we top it up from other taxes. So, you know, money is money is money. Uh, it, it doesn't really matter. We can't say that one euro raised in this tax is going for spending there and another euro raised in a different tax is going for another bit of spending over there. That, that's a bit of a fiction, really. And 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 so it, it it's not really something that we should think about the universal social charge really doing. It's just another tax on income. And just to be clear what we're talking about here, who pays the USC and what are the rates that it's paid at? And just to get a sense of the scale of it as well, how much money does it bring in for the government? Yeah, so the USC currently raises about five billion a year. Um, yeah, that's about four percent of total government revenue. So it, that's sizable enough. It's it's smaller though than some other taxes. So like we have income tax that brings in a much larger share, as does VAT, as does corporation tax, as does uh, PRSI. Right. So it, it it is a big tax, but it's not one of the biggest. Um, it's levied on income of of individuals, and it's levied at rates that depend on your level of earnings. So the rates vary from zero point five percent for very low earners to eleven percent for high earning self-employed people, those above kind of 100k. Um, and then you also have reduced rates for, for the elderly and for those in receipt of a medical card. So it's, um, and, and there's quite a few rates as well. So that's maybe one thing that distinguishes it from, say, income tax, where you have essentially a tax-free allowance or a tax credit, then a 20% rate and a 40% rate. There's more rates of the universal social charge. So from that point, I think people think of it as more progressive. And, and in a sense, it is because, you know, there's more gradation or there's more variation uh, as you go up in income. So higher earning people will pay a, a larger share of their income than lower earning people in it. So that was something I wanted to ask you about because I mentioned in the intro about how economists seem to love the USC. Can you tell us why? Like, what are the arguments in favour of it? Yeah, so I think one of the reasons that you tend to find economists generally supportive of the USC is that it's very broad-based tax. And by that, what I mean is it applies to kind of a wide definition of income. Um, so a wider definition than, say, my PRSI. It also applies to a wider definition of income than does income tax. So, for example, if you make pension contributions, you can deduct them from your income tax and private pension contributions, um, but you can't from the USC. You know, see. So there's kind of that, that, that's one of the kind of features that, you know, it's a bit broader in, in, in terms of space. And the, and the reason why economists like that, why, why they think that that's generally a good thing is because it means that you don't have to have as high rates to raise a given amount of money. 
And again, the reason that economists think that's a good idea is that all taxes are damaging to economic activity. And so really the one of the key goals of tax policy is how to raise a given amount of money in the least economically damaging way. And so again, from that point of view, what the USC, one of the nice features it has is that the rates don't have to be as high as they might otherwise because the, the base is so broad. So that, that's really kind of maybe the main reason that you, you tend to find economists and maybe policymakers quite like the USC. There's also the, the fact that, as kind of mentioned, it's very progressive, right? You have lots of rates of it. And so that means that the amount that is paid as a share of their income by someone on higher levels of earnings is much greater than someone at lower levels. And and so what the USC kind of does from that point of view is it's one of the things that really makes the Irish tax and welfare system quite progressive. It does a lot of redistribution. So it, it does a lot of actually the work of reducing our levels of uh, before tax uh, and welfare inequality, which are quite high relative to other countries, um, to actually quite modest levels. And, and so a big part of what uh, of what does that is the universal social charge, the fact that it essentially takes so much more from those who are better off and takes less from those who are, who are worse off. So if we didn't have the USC, the Irish income tax system would be less progressive? Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we would have higher levels of inequality, much higher levels of inequality without the USC. And, and so that really is then one of the, I suppose, reasons why it is so difficult to think about reforming or taking it away is because if you did that, you suddenly would have not just to plug a big gap in terms of the revenue, but also you would have a big issue in terms of the uh, um, the, progressive, the progressivity of the system would be very different to what it used to be. And that might be something that people want to do, but it does mean, it does mean it's a big deal to think about taking away the USC that it would actually end up having quite big consequences for the, the nature of Irish society. Daft.ie is the preferred site for anyone buying or selling a home in Ireland. Whether you're taking the first steps or planning your next move, make sure you're on daft.ie the best place to buy or sell your home in Ireland. It's interesting when you say it's something that people might want to do because it was something Fine Gael actually wanted to do in the not too recent past. Literally in 2016, in the general election, Fine Gael said that they, they ran in a campaign to abolish USC. So we had Leo Varadkar saying that they would abolish it in the lifetime of the government. Pascal Donoghue came out and said that it would benefit every worker to abolish it. Um, but all that talk about abolishing it has gone very quiet. We haven't heard anything about it in the last few years. So do you think it ever, from what you're saying... I don't think you would think it ever would be scrapped, but could you ever see any government getting rid of it? Is there any appetite for that? So I don't think it'll ever be gotten rid of um, in entirety. And just the reason is it just raises so much money. So five billion is a lot of revenue. And I think the reason that you see that kind of shift from what people say outside of government to when they're in government is five billion is a lot of money to, to have to raise. So if you want to think about the, the amount, you know, it's about a quarter of the health budget that we spend every year. It's it's about, uh, it's more than we spend every year on current spending of uh, the Department of Justice or the Department of Transport, right? So more it, it raises more than it costs to run the public transport of the country every year or to pay all the guards and and judges and prison officers and, and, and operate that whole system, right? And so from that point of view, once you're in power and you're thinking, okay, well, do we cut back on those services then? Or what, like, how do we make cuts of that magnitude? It's very hard to do, particularly when I think the demands on what people expect the state to do are growing. Um, and then if you're going to try to raise it from another tax source, um, you're going to have some winners and losers. And I think that's the other big thing, right? If you So you, the winners would, from abolishing the USC, would in particular be very high earners. And so even if you were to raise it again in income tax, what it does mean is that it, it is a very substantive decision. And unless that is a road you want to go down, then that's why I think it gets so tricky. It's it's not just the simple thing of, oh, well, we can just raise revenue elsewhere. It's, well, we have to raise a lot of revenue elsewhere and we'd have to raise it in, and, and you'd end up raising it in probably quite a different way. And that's going to leave a lot of people you know, we'll have some winners, but also we'll end up with some losers. And generally, the people who lose from a reform like that are louder than the people who win. 
OK, you've made a very compelling case for it. But what are the arguments against the USC? Yeah, so I think really the argument against the universal social charge is you think taxes should be lower. That's the best argument that there is against it. But what I don't really get, and I think this is where it falls down a little bit, is why focus on USC versus income tax or PRSI? Like You can perfectly legitimately think that taxes should be lower. That's a legit- perfectly legitimate position to hold. But I don't think there's a particularly strong case on other than, well, the USC has all this nastiness kind of attached to it and it's this poster boy for the austerity measures, there's not really a stronger case for getting rid of the USC, for lowering USC than income tax or PRSI. If anything, there's a bit weaker because, as we mentioned, it's got the broader base. So what, what you actually end up having to do is going to end up having having more impact on the economy by by, by lowering the, the, the rates of those other taxes. So that, that's kind of one aspect of it. The, the one case place where there actually is maybe a stronger case for reform is about the 11% rate. So this is the this extra additional rate that's paid on people above 100,000, but only self-employed. And there's not really a strong case for, like, why is it that someone over 100 grand who is a self-employed worker should pay this additional surcharge, but not, you know, a very well-paid um, um, PAYE worker, be they in the pro- private or the public sector. There's not, you know, that, that's maybe a stronger case for looking at ironing out that that, that kind of anomaly. But then on the, on the corresponding side, you've got other taxes which do it the other way around. So if you're into that kind of territory, then, you know, there is a good case to maybe look at equalising rates of tax across different types of workers, but that applies not just on USC, but also PRSI. Is that the main way you can think of that it could be improved then? Is there anything else that could be done to make it a slightly better tax? So I, th- I think we, we would have a better tax system as a country if we actually amalgamated uh, and we, you know, we got rid of the, the illusion that we have these three different taxes. They're all taxes on income. They differ a little bit in terms of the base. But realistically, it would be a more transparent and clearer system if we just amalgamated them into the one tax. You mean PAYE, PRSI and USC? Exactly. If we had yeah. in- income tax, P- PRSI and the universal social charge all merged into the one tax, that would be a lot I think, clearer, a lot more transparent. It would be a lot more like the system that operates in Denmark. So so in Denmark, they don't have any what are often called social security contributions, what we call PRSI. They just have a, a straight up tax system. They, you have your rates of your tax. They actually have some very high rates, but but it, it's very clear and transparent because it's everything bundled into one. Um, we, we don't have that. It's very actually hard to work out what exactly your, you know, your, how much tax you pay in an additional euro of earnings because you, you've got to look at the income tax and then you've got to look at the PRSI and then you've got to look at the USC. So there's a case for doing that. But then I suppose the, the, the reason that hasn't happened is because the other big difference between those taxes is that income tax is levied on the incomes of co- some married couples, um, uh, whereas universal social charge and PRSI are on individuals. So you would have to deal with that if you wanted to move them all together. And you'd have to also deal with that within the constraints of there are limits imposed by the constitution on treating married couples less favourably than non-married couples. Um, so so that, you know, that, that, that is a direction we could go down. There's, there's maybe, I think, that's where there is a stronger case for reform is by, again, just being clearer about who is paying tax and how much by bringing all these taxes together. But again, there are some downsides to that. I'd never actually realised until you said it there a few minutes ago that PRSI doesn't go into this special fund that is purely just ring fence and never needs to be topped up. Like my impression was always, I pay, we all pay PRSI and it goes to this special fund that gets paid out when it's needed for, for social um, for social programmes. So that was slightly eye-opening for me. Yeah. I feel like no, there's a whole other episode, I, isn't I, it? Will, and it, But it's one of these fictions that, you know, some bits of government like to per, uh, to pre- pre- perpetuate, which is that, oh, there is this magic fund there. and but, but again, if you look at actually what happens in practice, whenever we don't have enough to pay down today's like today's taxpayers pay today's pensioners and whenever there's not enough paid in PRSI we just top it up and whenever there's too much we don't pay that out as extra pensions yeah. we we just hold it in the fund and right so it's this complete fiction but it's sometimes 
useful for particular departments or particular people in government to pretend that, oh, well, pensions have to be paid for with this particular tax. Yeah, I but feel like that's definitely the message that's been the way yeah, that it, it, it's It's not true. <laughs> yeah. So are there any other countries that have a similar charge to USC? Is Ireland alone in, in having this kind of charge? No, so not really. So, so many, many countries have income tax and something else. Um, now, in most European countries, those are social security contributions and they're kind of the real social security contributions in the sense that they're often specifically to pay for health insurance and, and they are actually kind of in a way they're they're linked to say your your, your risk. So our, our, our social security contributions are much weaker than that. We kind of have them nominally, but there is a very weak link to date between the amount that you pay in PRSI and how much benefits you get. Um, countries do have different forms of taxes beyond income tax. We're not unusual in having more than one, but we're maybe a little bit more unusual in having three. So we're recording this the day after Budget 2024 was announced, and I've seen you and other economists have been digging into the details of the budget. So I wanted to ask you a bit about some of the kind of potential pitfalls and the weaker parts of the budget. Um, I saw you describing the tax breaks for landlords as being very, I enjoyed this quote, the stupidest tax relief of recent times against stiff competition. <laughs> Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So so there is a huge challenge in the housing market, right? We have a massive affordability problem. Um, your readers, I'm sure, know more than anyone else, uh, your listeners indeed, uh, and readers know, know this more than anyone else. But the idea, and, 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 and part of that is that we don't, we just don't have enough supply of houses, right? That we, we do not have enough houses. We do not, and in particular, we do not have enough houses in the rental market. Um, so the idea that this tax cut, what it's supposed to address is that the idea that there's lots of small landlords leaving the market. Well, one, you know, there are some small landlords leaving the market, but we actually don't have good data on how many, and that's a position we shouldn't be in. That's just, a te- like, we should know how many landlords there are, and it's, it, it, it is bad that we don't. Um, but it doesn't look like the exodus that is sometimes said by the lobby, lobbyists, the looks like, yes, there are some leaving, but not as many as being made out. But more more so, do we really think that this tax uh, break is going to keep any landlords in the market who would have otherwise left? And that's really the question that we should be asking. And the answer, I just see no evidence that introducing this tax credit, which is going to be about €600 Euro for a landlord in the first year, and eventually, after about three or four years, rise up to, to, uh, to about, I think, 1000 So do we really think that that is going to keep any landlords who would have left uh, in the market? And if not, actually, if you look at how they've structured it, all landlords are going to get this as long as they stay in. So we're, we're essentially what we're doing is giving a big tax cut to a bunch of landlords who mostly would have stayed in the market anyway. And so that's, a, that's going to be end up costing about £160 million a year. That's a lot of money. That's money that you could spend on another scheme. It's money that you could spend on actually doing things that might increase the supply of housing. It's money that you could spend on, you know, giving people who are in housing assistance payment more money. It's money you could spend on giving even the renters credit more money, right? There, there are other things you could do with that money. But the, the notion seems to have taken hold that, well, we have to do something. This is something. We have to do this. And I, I just see no evidence that it will actually prevent many landlords from leaving the market. And as a result, what we're going to end up doing is spending a lot of money giving it to people who do for, 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 for not leaving the market in any case. On a similar theme, the government brought in mortgage interest relief in this budget, which they'd flagged well in advance, but it doesn't seem to have been met with the kind of enthusiasm that the government might have wanted or expected. Was it a good idea for the government to bring in this relief for a group um, such as homeowners? So I think they're, 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 it's worth thinking about who are the group that you're trying to help here. So there is a group of uh, people who have mortgages with non-bank lenders. So that's like not with AIB or Bank of Ireland. And, and these non-bank providers kind of borrow money on the international markets and then lend it. And they essentially have ended up being hit much harder by the interest rate hikes than the traditional banks. They've jacked up their mortgages much more. So you have some people on six, seven, eight percent uh, mortgages, which are, are, are very much impacting them. So there's a group of people there who I think you can argue do need 
support. But this is much broader than that. What, what they've essentially done is they said uh, anyone who is on a variable rate mortgage and has seen their mortgage go up, the government will cover a bit of that up to a cap. Um, this kind of reintroduces in a more limited way a scheme that used to exist. So we used to have a much broader system of mortgage interest relief. And we got rid of that in the aftermath of the financial crisis for the very good reason that what it did was push up property prices, what it did was enable people to take on larger mortgages than they otherwise would have. And it was decided, and this is something that is almost universally agreed across the world by, by you know, the OECD or have it as their, 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 their clarion call that we should get rid of mortgage interest relief where it exists. And so it was one of the few good things we did during the financial crisis was to get rid of mortgage interest relief. We're now reintroducing it and we're introducing it for quite a broad range of people. But there's also these arbitrary cutoffs, right? So you have to have a mortgage balance of between 80,000 and 500,000 and you have to be on a variable rate and, and see that go up. So there's going to be groups who are excluded. They're going to be annoyed they're excluded. There's going to be calls for them to be included. There'll be calls for this mortgage interest relief to be extended. And we're going to end up, I fear, in a position whereby we're going to be back where we started. And that's not a good place to be in because, again, mortgage interest relief is a bad policy that really is a giveaway to, to particularly people who, who, who already are doing better than others, right? They're able to buy a house. They're actually doing quite well from that perspective versus people who are stuck in the rental market. And also it's going to just push up property prices in the same way that we might worry about help to buy and, and those other policies, uh, which, which are, again, very expensive. These are, we're talking again, over 100 million a year on, and that is money which could be better spent elsewhere. This episode of The Explainer was supported by daft.ie. With the largest number of properties for sale in Ireland and being the number one preferred site among buyers and sellers, daft.ie is the best place to buy or sell your home. So that's it from us. Thanks so much for listening to The Explainer, which is produced by Mauricio Carul and Nikki Ryan. And many, many thanks to Barra for being our guest this week. If you enjoy listening to us, you might consider leaving us a review in the place where you get your podcasts. We read them all and we appreciate them all. We'll be back in your feed next week. Until then, thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.